Okay, well, let's take a look at these and see what we came up with. Well, long, true, and false questions almost always false, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless. Jesus' statement that the Holy Spirit will remind you of everything I said to you is a promise that believers will receive special help from God to remember what they've read earlier in the Bible. Why is it false? He said that to his apostles, didn't he? Right. And the reminding is of things he actually said to them. So, probably what we call a pre-authentication of the apostolic writings or the New Testament scriptures. A lot of people think that. I think uh, that, uh, that there's this reminding ministry of the Just Holy Spirit, but uh, that's not what that has. And I would hazard that most people in our church think that. And the reason I say that is because I can think of four or five people who have talked to me the two years I've been here, and that's what they said. You know, because that's a, such a common, yeah, it's such a common view that. That's what that verse is talking about, reminding us of Scripture and so forth. Yeah, it's hard to know exactly whether God could do that, yeah. but uh, that's not what the that's not what the verse says. It's, but although I, I, I just I'm getting off a tangent here, but uh, some some people who are not charismatics or anything but do believe that. I mean, Phil Johnson, hmm. and I read just something where he said he thought, yeah, that that could happen, and. You know, I'm unclear that, that that's what this verse is talking about, but is it possible that God could, uh, in a moment of, when you come to, to have to give an answer, you know, that... Yeah. You wonder how God does help. I mean, we understand that the Holy Spirit helps us in certain ways, but it's unclear how that happens. It is unclear. And particularly when we're talking about information like this, we don't want to have God inserting new data in our heads but reminding yeah. seems a little bit more it's not quite re- it's not it's not it's not like revelation it's not god revealing anything new yeah. but is he is he able to work on our minds so that our minds function properly yeah that we remember maybe that's true you know it could be although i don't think that's what this verse well certainly is. not what this verse i don't says, think this verse is saying but it certainly may be possible that's right it just doesn't work when you're taking a test. And some <laughs> are taking a test here. It just there's no reminding. I don't well, many times I prayed for this. One, <laughs> <laughs> they said I used to pray that bring to mind everything that I'd studied. <laughs> yeah, the, okay. basically it's the opposite of what Kenny did through high school. <laughs> the rapture's going to come, so I don't need to study. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's why. That's why on test day I never let anybody else pray except for me <laughs> because I'm afraid of what they're going to pray for. <laughs> well, I always, I always did pray that God would help them to remember. I, I mean, it seems like that's not an un, an unbiblical prayer, right? Yeah. Well, sometimes you get a little bit worse yeah. than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people freeze right up on tests. You know? Yeah, yeah. So God would help them be calm and inattentive. Okay, so what are the three... Well, let's first say, what, what's the objective witness to the inspiration of Scripture? I answered some of those. I put Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, I put Christ's quoting of Scriptures. Right. B- basically, it's the... An apostle's the, reliance. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it's the Bible yeah. saying it's 
saying itself that it is true and from God and inspired and so. Uh, but what's the subjective witness then? Okay, what what convinces the hearer or the reader that it is the word of God? General revelation. I'm sorry. General revelation. Okay. Recognize the voice of God. Okay. Yeah. So not necessarily the same thing, but yeah, the, the second point is really where I was going. But there's some sort of immediate recognition of the voice of God because we're made in His image as 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 His creatures. Um, just as just as the unbeliever uh, is able to see the hand of handiwork of God in creation, there's an argument to be made that uh, men are without excuse. You know, because that, that that whole Romans one tells us some things that people know, and they can't they can't know these things. You know, strictly from looking at the rocks and the trees and the sky. There's some of this, some of this information that is propositional. You know, they know if we do these things, we're worthy of death. So there's got to be some level of recognition of 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 what God when God speaks uh, in the scriptures that this is this is His work. So that's the first element, and that's and that's available to everybody, believers and unbelievers alike. What's the second? Conviction. Conviction. Now, what's that? It's more along the lines of recognizing that it is the truth. It's not a regenerating type of right. recognition, but yeah, and it always involves the word. So, mm-hmm. so the Bible is is, and it's I, I, it's hard to know exactly how to define that, but there's some sort of an augmenting a. a, a an impressing of the realization that these words are true, and I'm in trouble because they are true. That kind of, kind of, kind of thing. And then, what's the third aspect? I was having a hard time coming up with the. Uh, it's the internal testimony. Internal testimony of the spirit. Yeah, so the internal testimony of the spirit. We could call that an illuminating work of the spirit. We could call it regeneration, really, because that's what it is. A special work of God, a supernatural work of, of God, on the individual, so that they not only recognize the word for what it is, but also properly embrace it and welcome it uh, as they ought. And so, those are the three works of God, we might say, upon the individual, so that they know that the Bible is true and from God. Okay, does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay, well, let's go ahead and jump into the notes then. I believe we're on page 49, 49, and much of the next two, possibly even three weeks, will be in this letter D. You know, there's six points underneath of it, probably the next two weeks. Uh, we'll, we'll be given over to this, this, this uh, topic here of corollaries of inspiration. The reason I, the reason I put it this way is... Uh, we, we can basically uh, state any one of these six points in the following way. Because inspiration is true, then it has authority. It has inerrancy. It uh, is, we, we've been able to correctly 
assemble the canon. It's been preserved. It is sufficient. And so that's that's basically the the, uh, the line of argument here. Um, but the reason we put it in terms of corollary is because some of these points that we're going to talk through are actually fairly thin in terms of direct biblical support. And this is one of those occasions where sometimes, now some of these you do have chapter and verse, but some of them you don't. You don't have chapter and verse on some of these. And yet I think we can confidently say that each of these points is true despite sometimes the paucity of, of, of chapter and verse on occasion. Uh, they seem in many ways to sort of become yeah, the, 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 the support, the, the Bible references become scarcer as we work through the outline. So the first ones up front are more than corollaries, uh, but as you get towards the end, uh, the corollary becomes very important to us. Okay, So I say here that the Bible's inspiration is the centerpiece of the doctrine of Scripture. You get that right, the Bible is inspired, then the rest of these things fall into place. Okay, Again, this is part of the reason, again, why I would say that inspiration properly applies only to the Scriptures. And while the words of the prophets and words of Jesus were true and authoritative, they don't fall into this block of, of corollaries here. Uh, those, those uh, wh- while they are true, they're authoritative, they've not necessarily been preserved, they've not been canonized, um, uh, and they are not part of this, uh, you know, selection of material that is necessary for life and godliness. You know, God gives us everything necessary for life and godliness. And so while there's things that Christ has said and the prophets have said and the apostles have said that are true, uh, the what the fact that they have not been preserved indicates that those either, one, are not necessary for life and godliness or, or else are contained elsewhere in the scriptures. Okay, So inspiration doesn't stand alone. So there's a network of other doctrines that we may infer from the doctrine of inspiration. They're not, they're not properly syllogisms. Some of them are, uh, but they're at least corollaries. And these, when demonstrated by Scripture, contribute to our understanding and certainty of the inspiration and authority of the Word of God. Okay. The first of these is authority. Authority. This almost goes without saying. In fact... For years, I didn't actually have this point in my uh, notes, and I realized, and actually, I had never had a discussion of authority, so I thought it was probably necessary to put it in here. Um, it's sort of assumed as we work our way through, but I, I thought it was better to state it too. So the corollary is this: since God breathed out all of Scripture, it follows that the Bible is authoritative. So the Scriptures are authoritative because they come from God. It's really been assumed all the way along here that inspiration and authority go hand in hand, but it's helpful to formalize this. The authority of the Bible is the first and greatest corollary of inspiration. Its binding authority does not flow from its inerrancy. As important as that doctrine is, uh, inerrancy actually comes... In a way, in a way, afterward, there's actually other books out there that, at least 
in theory, might be inerrant, or at least certainly documents. I'm sure there's some documents here and there that are completely accurate in everything that they say. Uh, but that, that, that uh, but the authority of Scripture actually precedes this. Okay. So from the fact that God breathed out its words, we derive the authority of Scripture. We don't first evaluate Scripture's parts and then submit to them. As their accuracy and importance emerge, we submit to the authority of the Scriptures because God produced them, sometimes when we don't even know why he said what he said. I mean, that's often the case, right? Now we open up our Scriptures and God says something and you scratch your head and say, I wonder why that was there. Um, and, and hopefully as time passes, you, you start to put the pieces together and you figure out why that was there. But until you do, it's not as though you're you, that's in doubt. Uh, it's it's true because God said it. It's true because God said it. You know, you know, we've got to make sure that men are pastors because of the angels. You, know. <laughs> you read that and say, huh? <laughs> what? I I don't follow. And I've got I've got a I've got a few theories about that. But it's but it's an odd statement. You know, you you, you wonder exactly why that's the case. And, and uh, I don't know if you thought much about that, but. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What standard uh, creative order there? Right, their hierarchy, their hierarchy of the creative yeah. order. Yeah, but, and but there's, there's that really strange part where he says, uh, "Because of the angels." Right, that's what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. Right, first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to cover their heads. Right. So, so he submitted. So, the, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I'm just going to. You hear what we were saying? We were just saying that one interpretation is that the angels are observers of the created order, and this would be a disturbance of the normal natural order that God has created since creation, man, woman, and they would be they would be disturbed by that. It's, but it's a problem because it just says because of the angels. Well, what about the angels? So we're as you say, that's a possibility. It seems reasonable, but I don't know if it's right or not. Yeah, it just seems to pop out of the blue. Yeah, <laughs> Paul says it. <laughs> Expects the Corinthians to know it, you know. Okay, so the authority of the Bible is it goes hand in hand with inspiration. It's authoritative because it's inspired. Perhaps a little more precisely than that, we find that not only are the is the Bible authoritative, but it is also Without error. Without error. And here's the corollary. This one is set up more as a syllogism than just a mere corollary. Since God, who is truth and cannot lie, is the author of Scripture, it follows that the Bible is also true and has no errors. Okay. Error either comes from deceit or from ignorance. God is not capable of either. So there's no error in Scripture. So there's two words I'm going to use here. Uh, infallibility is an older term. So it's the uh, original term that was used to describe this concept of the fact that there are no errors or mistakes in the Bible. Edward J. Young says this, by the term infallible as applied to the Bible, we, need simp- we mean simply that the Scripture possesses an indefectible authority. It can never fail. 
hence infallibility. It cannot fall, it cannot fail. It cannot fail in its judgments and statements. All that it is it teaches is of unimpeachable absolute authority and cannot be contravened, contradicted, or gainsaid. Scripture is unfailing, incapable of proving false, erroneous, or mistaken. Though heaven and earth should pass away, its words of truth will stand forever. I think it's a very strong statement here of what it means to hold to infallibility. Now, as we're going to see here, that this term has gotten watered down over the years, uh, but as Young writes, it's, uh, it carries this very strong definition here. What's, Look, what's gainsaid? It's a word I've never heard. Yeah, it's, it's a King James word. Yeah, it oh. is a King James word. It's um, <laughs> there's, there's nothing that can be said against it that can upturn it, I think, oh, is sort of the idea. Just speak against it. You can't speak against it. You can't. Oh, no, well, nothing can stand against it. Right. How old was young? Well, he was ready. You've you got to read your King James more, because I know that's in there. Is it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> this word, gainsay, I guess, sounds So, some, some text here that speaks specifically to the idea of the scriptures not being able to fail or to fall are these passages we've looked at already, uh, but uh, perhaps we can remind ourselves of them again. Uh, John 10.35 statement here that the scriptures cannot be broken. It's in a somewhat interesting context here, but I've written in, it's written in your law, I have said you are God's if he who called them gods to whom the God, word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one of whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why do you accuse him of blasphemy because he said, I am God's son? So he's, he's arguing for his own deity at this point. And, uh, and he appeals back to the Old Testament statement that uh, says that in some sense we're all sons of God so it shouldn't be objectionable for him to call himself a son of God but he actually calls himself the son of God uh, but but it, he throws this little line in here almost in parentheses here the scripture cannot be broken it's true, it cannot fail there, the scriptures cannot be broken apart so that parts of it are true and parts of it are not it all rises and falls together as a unit. They cannot be, cannot be broken. Same thing is true in Matthew 5, verse 18. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, that's the, the jot and the tittle. Some doubt, there's some question about exactly what that is, that, that the, the jot or the yod is the smallest of the Hebrew letters. It's very tiny little letter. It looks like an apostrophe, so you almost would possibly say it doesn't even look like a letter because it's it's much smaller than the rest of the Hebrew letters. And then the tittle. There's some doubt. There's you know there's actually a uh, yeah there's two letters, dalit and resh, and about the only difference is 
They look about the same, but the, the dollet has a pointer, actually, sometimes actually has a little bit of a hook there to distinguish it from a race. And it's scarcely, scarcely, you know, a lot of times when people are copying the Bible, if that's one of the errors they make, they they, they switch out a, a dollet and a race because of that little hook. They don't see the little hook. And that's uh, that's uh, maybe what is meant here by that tittle, that little hook. Uh, so, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, yod, jot, or the least stroke of the pen, the, the tittle, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And as we said before, at stake here is not so much the preservation of Scripture, although that may be an implication. Rather, it's the fact of its fulfillment. All of it will be fulfilled. It will all be accomplished because it is all true. So it's not so much the exactness of biblical revelation that's at stake, but actually the abiding authority of the Bible and the certainty of its claims. These things will happen because they're part of the Bible. Okay. But again, the, the point isn't so much here to say that the scriptures will always be available to us or that they'll necessarily be preserved. We'll talk about that concept coming up here um, in, in, this, in this discussion here. Uh, but uh, I don't think that's the point that's being made. Rather, it's, it's speaking to the unfailing nature of the Bible, and hence that's why I put it under infallibility. There's also a second word that's used, it's a little more modern word, word inerrancy, means the same thing as infallibility. Uh, without it, you would see no, no error. So incapability of error or mistake in the Bible. You notice I actually have identical definitions there. That's by by design here. But this more precise ter- term emerged in the mid-20th century to replace the older term infallibility because some non-evangelicals were starting to redefine infallible to say, okay, the you know, the, the major promises and, and such of the scriptures will not fail, but some of the details might not be as precise as they need. It might not, might not be, you know, every, every little datum of scripture may not be true. It's just that the whole thing won't fail to be accomplished. It'll, it'll, it'll survive in that sense. In actuality, the terms mean exactly the same thing, and you could use them interchangeably, uh, but most people today use the term inerrancy. Uh, infallibility is, is rarely used, and uh, usually when people use it, they sort of qualify by saying, well, what I mean by infallibility is inerrancy because it's a little more, a little more precise of a term. So the proof here... I, I have in the form of a syllogism God's word is true there's many statements to that effect in the scriptures themselves um, Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie so everything God says is true 1 Samuel 15 God does not lie or change his mind Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are flawless. Same thing in Proverbs 30. John 17, 7, 
God's word is truth. Titus 1, 2, God cannot lie. Hebrews 6, it is impossible for God to lie. So every one of those verses says that everything that God says is true. And that's, and that's what we, what is meant by this phrase, God's word in scripture. Um, I think we, we, we make a mistake when we, when we look at the uh, Bible and we come, we stumble across this phrase, God's word, and we think that's a reference to the Bible. Uh, that's how we tend to use it today. We talk about the Word of God. What do we mean? We're, we're talking about the Bible. Uh, but when you see that phrase in the Scripture, it's it's a little bit broader uh, than than just the the written Scriptures. God's Word is anything that God says or writes or communicates. That that's the Word of God. Uh, so in fact, some of the contexts are such that God is actually speaking aloud here when we say that God's Word is true. So God's word is a broad concept of which the Bible is a part. Okay, the Bible is a specific, very uh, 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 you know, instance of God's word. But it is God's word. Uh, we find that uh, in, we've seen that in the uh, in the Second uh, Timothy and Second Peter. These are the passages on inspiration that talk about the scriptures uh, being. God's word coming directly from God through inspiration. And because God's word is true and the Bible is God's word, the implication must necessarily be that the Bible is true. And so by thus interrelating the doctrines of divine fidelity, faithfulness, truth, and biblical inerrancy, the Bible clearly views each doctrine as indispensable to the other. It's not just a word or a story that's at stake in the inerrancy debates. You know, it's not, okay, is it possible that the Jonah story might have been exaggerated because it seems impossible? And perhaps somebody would debate that. So, you know, it's not as though the Bible would, you know, fall apart if one of its stories isn't there. But, but see, there, that's what we're, we're missing the point here of inerrancy if we say that. Because inerrancy has to do with the credibility and the character of God himself. So anything that God said, anything that God said, whether it be uh, the Jonah story or any other piece of the scripture, if any of it is untrue, we've not just said that a piece of the Bible might have an error in it, we've actually said that God's a liar. So that's, that's the significance of that. So the kind of Bible we believe in is directly proportionate to the kind of God we really believe in. Okay. So if we say that there might you know, there might be little holes and pieces of the Bible that are yeah, a little bit far fetched or or you know can't, can't possibly be true, uh, then that's what we're saying about God. He's he's a bit far fetched at times, and what he says isn't true. Uh, so, so what's at stake here is very significant. It's not just a piece of the scripture. It's the very character of God himself. So the corollary, I think, is, is quite strong. But we also do have statements of biblical inerrancy along the way as well that actually say that the Bible, the scriptures, are true. Uh, Psalm 19 is perhaps the, uh, the, the best place to appeal because in Six verse in three verses, you have actually six references uh, to the inerrancy of Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. 
the precepts of the Lord are right. They, they adhere to a standard, giving joy of the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, that is giving light to the eyes. So it's 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 perhaps we could say the word illuminating. Okay. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever, and the ordinances the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous or correct. So right there we have a great number of adjectives used. None of them is exactly the same, but I think all of them combined to give us a rather robust understanding of what we mean. In fact, there are no errors in, in this case, the law of the Lord. David doesn't have the entirety of the scriptures, but he does have the Torah, and that's what he's speaking to in this case. Psalm 119, of course, is well known as a passage about the about the uh, Bible. The Bible shows up in a lot of its verses as well. And several of those verses, again, speak to the fact that it's true and accurate and precise and everything that it says. Okay, so the Bible is true. The Bible is without error. And there's other implications that we find throughout the scriptures as well. Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures which by implication means that if you knew the scriptures, what? There wouldn't be an error. So because the scriptures are without error. Psalm, uh, I said Matthew fourteen forty nine. Scriptures must be fulfilled. Well, why must they be fulfilled? Well, it's because there aren't any errors in them. And if it doesn't unfold the way the scriptures say, then the scriptures themselves have been jeopardized. So the scriptures must be fulfilled because that's their nature. That's their character. They're always true. Acts 17, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians because they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Again, what's the implication? The standard of truth is the scripture. Yeah, they're... Perhaps was some, you know, it's it's hard to know exactly how to factor in the fact that Paul was an apostle here, and perhaps they should have believed him because he was an apostle. But uh, that that aside, they checked up on what he said by the only means they could. You know, isn't isn't wasn't that the uh, the, the the question that was was raised earlier in the in the prophets? Now, what, what if someone, what if prophets come and speak a word and you don't know whether it's true? What's the answer? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to the words of the law, they haven't the light of day. Again, so again, so again the, the Bible then becomes the benchmark, the standard of what is true. I think even the fact that the scriptures are the final authority in all matters of faith and practice also points to the biblical writer's assumption of inerrancy as well. The fact that there is authority implies that there must be inerrancy as well. Okay. So when Paul taught in the churches, does that have the same weight as script, what, what was written in Scripture? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, we don't have it. Right, but. right. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. It's a good question. Um, once a prophet or in the New Testament an apostle spoke uh, we know that what they said was true however there was always the question is this guy a legitimate prophet in the Old Testament 
Or is this guy a legitimate apostle in the new? And this was the this was the one meaning, you know, you know, Deuteronomy 18. You know that that's this whole passage on what to do with a uh, false prophet. You know, somebody comes up and says something in the assembly. Uh, how do you know what they said is true, and what do you do with them? Okay, well, yeah. Yeah, I will raise up him, Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. But if anyone does not listen to my words, the prophet says in my name, I will call him to account. Any any prophet who presumes to speak in my name. So there's false prophets out there. And there are false apostles. They, <laughs> there continue to be false apostles, right? There's... You know, there's there's kind of foster groups and such that still speak of apostles and such. If someone claims to be a prophet, or in the New Testament, somebody claims to be an apostle, presumes to speak in my name, anything that I have not tell, told them to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of another god, he must be put to death. You may say to yourself, how do we know what has been spoken by the Lord? Well, if what the prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, then it is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Don't be afraid of him. Take him out and stone him. Okay. So uh, would those folks have revelation that we don't have because they heard? What, the prophets oh, and the apostles? Cause they, yeah, because they heard yeah, they speak. Yeah, they're, spoke, they're spokesmen for God, and so whatever an apostle says or a prophet says is is as trustworthy as Scripture. Now, it's not it's not Scripture, but it's as authoritative and and and, and, and inerrant as the Scriptures are. What about um, like when Paul confronted Peter about uh, the Galatians were confronted about what, what, what about in that case if Peter were yeah. Was an error, right? Yeah, it, this yeah the fact that the the apostle or prophet could speak without error does not mean that every time he spoke, he was without error. Like cathedral, right? right? Yeah, I mean it's, it's effectively what we've got here. So when you're sitting under that's not my question. Yeah, if you were sitting under Paul and he's preaching every yeah. every Sabbath day, yeah, I would assume when, when he's speaking the, when he's speaking the gospel, the word of God. I was thinking of that Berean thing, you know, that Deuteronomy 13 is the other passage. Deuteronomy 13 talks about if a prophet leads you astray, yeah. then then he's a false prophet. And you could argue, maybe you could argue the Bereans were in fact biblical in the sense they were going to look at the scriptures and say, okay, let's just check this Paul out. Right. And uh, and but once once you see that he is an apostle, then you're under his authority. Right. And you have to you have to accept what he says. But I think we agree that Paul could have made mistakes in other areas, maybe. He, but when he's speaking officially. Officially, doctrinally, writing letters. So when him and Peter had a dispute, they were. That was between. Them. Well, that was just misconduct on the yeah. part of Peter. Like, that like was Peter just, didn't even say anything. Yeah, he just, he just he, he was acting. Uh, he was acting so unbiblically. He was teaching somebody something. No. Else, so it was just it, it, well, Paul says you're teaching by your example, but he didn't actually say anything. He just implied by his. By his 
Okay. <laughs> Good. Yeah. To ask a question to the right being recorded. <laughs> Who's that? Heretic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not responsible for anything that's said on this board. <laughs> 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 now, there's a couple of qualifications we want to make on this. Um, not, not the, the point is not to say that the Bible might have a few errors here and there. But what, I, what I'm saying is that we need to make sure we're defining inerrancy as carefully as possible. And uh, sometimes you'll, you'll encounter someone who will, uh, who will, you know, challenge the accuracy of what the Bible says. Uh, because of one of these factors here. And I want to make sure we understand uh, the implications here of biblical inerrancy. Firstly, this one I think pretty easy to, to, to understand, but th- this is one that people bring up all the time. The doctrine of inerrancy speaks to accuracy, but not always to exactness. Uh, you say, what's the difference? Well, what the Bible says is true, but it may not be as precise as it could be. It would be like me saying, you know, what's the value of pi? 3.14. Well, no, it's not. It's 3.14152560. You know, you could, you could keep going. But that, well, it was not that I, what I said was inaccurate. It was perhaps less precise than what someone else might say, but uh, it's it's no less no less accurate. So the doctrine of inerrancy can accommodate imprecision. For instance, in Numbers 1, and actually then at the end of Numbers as well, there's two countings of the, uh, of the uh, number of fighting men from each tribe. And in each of these lists, uh, the, uh, the, the, the number of, of fighting men in each tribe is rounded to the nearest 50 or 100. Is it possible it might have been 46? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it seems like they're just rounding to the closest whole unit here. First Kings seven twenty three that pool, the pool at Solomon's palace was ten cubits in diameter, but only thirty cubits in circumference. Well, talk about pi here. You know, if if it was ten cubits in diameter, the circumference should have been thirty one point four one five, and yet it doesn't say. That. In fact, you, you can actually read some commentaries where people say, "Well, it was because it was thick; it was a stone thing, and so it was thick, and so it was measuring from the, the one is from the inside of the circle, and one's outside of the circle." I don't really think that's necessary because the scriptures do, do not speak always with absolute precision, but they do speak with accuracy. That's because the tape measure wasn't long enough, so they just <laughs> guessed at that. Put a stick right there. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes you'll you'll find people who will who will sort of try and trip you up on this technicality that it's not as precise, it's not accurate. It shouldn't have been thirty; it should have been thirty-one. Well, it's just a round figure. Second point here: the doctrine of inerrancy can accommodate what we might call grammatical errors. And I put errors in quotation marks because sometimes we're talking about grammatical conventions here. Uh, not necessarily errors. You know, your English teacher probably did. You know, she probably actually did believe it was a matter of morality here, but it, but it's not. You know, just when we say something is 
incorrect grammatically. We're not saying it's immoral or wrong in that sense. It's just a convention. So grammar and syntax are matters of convention and custom that are held in common by groups of people, but they're not matters of truth and error. For instance, you know, we could we could say the two things the same way. You know, I have never killed a man. Okay, that's one way of state, stating something. But I could also say, I ain't never killed nobody. Well, the you know the the you know the persnickety grammarian would say, aha, he just confessed. You know, uh, but no, 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 no. Uh, if you said that in a court of law, people would interpret that the uh, the correct way and say. Uh, you mean the same thing? I've never killed anyone. Okay, um, so that's not an error. It is definitely a convention that you violated, uh, but it's but it is not an error. So one cannot expect a common fisherman to to use the same level of grammatical and syntactical precision as a trained medical doctor or a legal expert. Now, I should I should say that Peter seems to be a pretty eloquent fellow here. Uh, at the same time, he probably doesn't have the, the breadth of vocabulary as a well-educated man like Luke or Paul would have had. So, uh, Peter would have been limited in how he expressed things, uh, more so than perhaps Luke or Paul, who had a who had a, a keener grasp, perhaps, of, of the Greek language. So, thirdly here, the doctrine of inerrancy can accommodate paraphrase, and abridgment. We talked about this a little bit already with this, remember our discussion of ipsissima wax and ipsissima verba. You know, sometimes uh, the, uh, the, the the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, even John, uh, would, uh, would summarize or paraphrase a message that Jesus gave rather than quoting it verbatim. Um, and, you know, the they don't have, they don't have the uh, the the newspaper and the scrutiny that we have today, where people are going to you know uh, you know fine tune everything, make sure you've got everything quoted very perfectly. That wasn't that wasn't didn't seem to be something that they were nearly as concerned with. There, there would have been paraphrase. So, but. When Jesus was giving his sermons, wouldn't he have likely been speaking in Aramaic? Yes, and that's that's another factor along the way, too. So it was up to the writers to determine what Greek words means. So there may have actually been not not only a, a, a paraphrase and summary, but actually a translation and an interpretation uh, that 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 occurs before it shows up in the in the text of the of the New Testament. And so I, I give you an example here. Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with ek, all of your heart, cardia, with ek, all of your soul, suke, and with ek, all of your strength, dunamis. I'm, I'm using the Septuagint version here of Deuteronomy 6.5, that's LXX. Um, in theory, there were 70 translators who operated for 70 days to translate the uh, whole Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek probably not probably not actually true uh, but uh, this is this is would have been the Bible of Jesus day uh, the Septuagint there may have been variations here and there but by and large it was it was accurate 
And so Jesus is confronted by a, a rich man who says, you know, I've kept the whole law. And Jesus says, what does the law say? Well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So far, so good. Though he's used a different preposition, but so far, not too much different. With all your strength and with all of your mind. Well, there's there's no there's no version of Deuteronomy 6.5 that includes with all of your mind. He, he, he added that, apparently. So, so where, where does he come off doing that? And not only in that, Jesus replies, you have spoken correctly. <laughs> well, well, no, he didn't. He actually made a mistake. He actually added to what the Scriptures... Well, no, he caught what the Scriptures meant. In fact, he actually you know, sort of put an exclamation point on what the Scriptures say. And so there's, there's room here for paraphrase, abridgment, and even in this case, something of an addition that, that, that shows he understood what the Scriptures meant. So inerrancy does not in every case mean absolute precision. It, it speaks to accuracy. Okay, so that's that's one qualification. Any thoughts on that one? And that can be a little bit unnerving, uh, but uh, I don't I don't think we're violating the inerrancy of Scripture to make those suggestions. Another qualification here is that the doctrine of inerrancy speaks to the original manuscripts only. So inspiration and inerrancy speak to the production of the text and thus applies only to the original manuscripts, sometimes called the autographs. Translations of those original manuscripts or copies of those original manuscripts are not inspired or inerrant because they reflect the mediation of erring men. So the copying of scriptures and the translation of scripture is not done uh, with the uh, governance of inspiration. Uh, there actually are mistakes made along the way. Now, some speak of copies and translations as derivatively inspired. It's a word that my systematic theology teacher used, that it's, it's got a derived inspiration but I, it seems it seems like an odd strain, an, an odd word to use. It's either inspired or it's not. It's best to think of them as authoritative, insofar as they reflect the original. God does not guide the translators in any sense, like He guided the authors of Scripture. So uh, when we talk about inerrancy, we're talking about the original manuscript, not necessarily the translation you have in front of you. Which is why, on occasion, your pastor will get up on. Sunday and say, you know, this could be worded better. Or, you know, you know, a different translation says it another way and it's actually better. Or, you know, the, you know, the translation in front of you occasionally, perhaps, I usually pastors try and avoid saying this, uh, but they might say, your translation actually is wrong at this point. <laughs> yeah, the, this other translation has it correct. Uh, and that's, that, that does not mean that you know, the Bible is lacks inerrancy. What we're saying here is that there might have been a mistake made by the particular batch of translators that made this translation. Okay? 
So we're only speaking of the original manuscripts when we speak of inerrancy. There's no scripture to which one can appeal to establish a divine promise of a perfectly preserved or inerrant copies or translations. And the King James is not. You know, let's let's put the elephant on the table here. Okay, uh, the the King James is not perfect. It is not without error. It's got plenty of errors. I know a fellow who wrote an article. Errors in the King James. Just came to mind right here, right? <laughs> and there's and there's some that aren't even laugh, laughable, you know. Uh, the, the strain out a gnat, uh, strain at a gnat. You know, are you familiar with that line? You, uh, what is it? You, what, what's the what's the line here? Swallow a camel. You swallow a camel, but strain at a gnat. Well, that doesn't really make any sense. Until you realize that it probably was just a, a perhaps a typesetting error. It's hard to know exactly. Should have been string out in that. Okay, it was just a mistake. Not a particularly huge one here, but it was a mistake, and it's been fixed in in other translations. It still still lives on in the King James. Because well, every translation before the King James had strain out too. Right. So the King James then <clears throat> was unique. Yeah, and it has strain at. Right. So it's probably some sort of typesetting error Apparently. that got you know just that just got perpetuated yeah. despite all of the all of the updates that have taken place. It's it's never fixed. Yeah. Called you to doubt your salvation, didn't it? <laughs> well, that's like that uh, that wicked Bible. Yeah, we go to it was a, we go to University of Michigan. Um, they have a copy of the Wicked Bible. Yeah. Um, it's uh, so-called because uh, when the uh, the King James first came out, there were two separate printings, and the first printing uh, came out with uh, in, in in Exodus twenty is Thou shalt. No, that was later. Wicked Bible was later. The Wicked Bible. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was. No, that's he and she Bible. Sixteen eleven. Okay, about Ruth, you know. Right, right. But not Wicked Bibles later. I thought. Okay. No, it's seventeen something. I think. Okay, seventeen sixteen. Well, it, was a, it was Bible went into print yeah. that said, yeah. "Thou shalt commit adultery." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the printer, the printer was fined by the king. Wasn't right. Fined right. so much for that and making that mistake. So, so there's no English translation. No, no Greek or Hebrew manuscript today that can boast inerrancy. Now, it might be little scraps here and there that have no errors, but but as far as a substantive block of scripture, there's nothing that can boast inerrancy today. We don't have the originals, although no two extent manuscripts are identical, and presumably no manuscript is identical to the original. Fact remains that no single scripture doctrine is seriously jeopardized in any of them. The essential message of the scripture exists in just about every translation. Uh, fortunately, that little box here got split onto two pages. Uh, sorry about that, but uh, you can see these uh, these three options here. King James' only position is that the autographs are inerrant, and so therefore some translation must be inerrant. Modernism says the copies have errors, and so therefore the autographs must have had errors. 
and the biblical position uh, lies in between. The autographs, the original manuscripts, are inerrant since they were breathed out by God himself, but the translations err because they are the work of fallible men. Yours is fine. It's mine that was messed up here. But uh, I'm not sure how that happened. Yeah, that's funny. Unless that's an earlier... And you made some changes to the PDF or something you sent me. I don't think yeah, I did. Ours are broken up. Oh, yours is broken up. So yours is the only one that's... <laughs> yeah. That's because his font is about half the size of ours. No. His is an error. <laughs> <laughs> this is the autograph right here. Right? <laughs> this is the autograph. <laughs> I've got a little bit of a discussion question. Maybe we can sort of close off. We're not going to get through all these six qualifications here, but uh, this is a perhaps an interesting discussion question. Maybe delves a little bit into ten translation technique. Maybe a, maybe a little bit more technical than it, than it might be, but I think it's a, a discussion worth having because you're going to meet some of these Yours isn't there, too. Then theirs is not there, either. No, it's not supposed to be. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Except because it's supposed to have the, uh, oh, it's supposed to have, uh, yeah, I'm, so, so mine, mine's the original. Well, no. yours is the, mine. there is a different one. <laughs> <laughs> I think you do have the original. <laughs> you know, I think I might have printed mine from the Word so I could take out a copy. Anyway. But the question here is to what degree do the doctrines of inerrancy and inspiration affects the translation you use. And there's obviously a lot of debate about you know what translation you should use, what kind of translation you can use. And there's different types. There's a formal equivalency that not only attempts to uh, you know get the words correct, but actually tries to keep the ordering of the words correct. The forms are that's why it's called formal equivalency. It preserves the forms of the uh, original language. And then there's there's sometimes called functional equivalency, which says, okay, tra- you know, languages are different from one another, and in order to make sense of one language and another, sometimes you have to rearrange the words a little bit. And so, the, uh, so like, for instance, the NIV reads a little bit more smoothly than, say, the King James or especially the New American Standard. Uh, we often use the word wooden to describe the uh, New American Standard because it's very it's very stilted feeling where the NIV flows a little bit more off the tongue some object to that because you've actually not just translated the words but you've rearranged some of the structures to make it feel a little bit more Englishy okay, than, uh, than Nashby does and then you've got then you've got even even further things. You've got you've got paraphrases or or free translations here, uh, where yeah, you aren't even really concerned, you know, even about some of the specific content. Uh, you're actually just trying to summarize, paraphrase, or even you know, make it colloquial. Uh, so, so you've got the, these variations of translations, and there's a lot of question as to what we should use. Some people will say uh, that uh, if 
the Bible is true in its original words and the original structures and the original sentences, then perhaps what we ought to do is try to keep them as absolutely intact as possible uh, so as not to lose anything, okay? Hence, we have translations like the New American Standard, which is actually more formal than the King James. The King James is actually less formal than New American Standard. New American Standard is probably one of the most wooden and careful in terms of following the forms of Scripture. Okay? And perhaps, I'm not trying to sound uh, biased against it, but I'm not a real fan of the New American Standard myself. For, for that reason, it's hard to read. It's a little hard to read. But let me, let me ask you, is that correct? Is that right? Is that correct? Uh, we talked about this some in our hermeneutics class, and Dr. Cronin was saying that, that it, no matter what you do when you translate, there's some interpretation you're going, that has to happen. There's no such thing as word for word. Yeah, so all translators are traitors is the little rubric that you sometimes have. When you translate from one language to another, there's always there's always difficulties. Uh, it, no language there there are no two languages that are exactly alike, such that you, all you have to do is replace the words. There's structural things that are different as well. Um, so you now, when some of these Bible translators go into some of these native languages. If you try to do it word for word, there's no way you get through it. Yeah. And that be a word for it. Right. Yeah. I I point point out a a few things here that show up in, I don't actually have them in front of you, but you can sort of fill these in as you go here. Some Some of the problems that translators run into when they're translating are, first of all, idioms. Idioms can't be translated word for word and retain their original meaning. I, I still remember one time I, I was in, I was in China, and I was and I was uh, I was I was giving some illustration about my kids. They were younger at the time, and I said that my kids were making me climb the walls. Okay, well, we we understand what that means. We use that kind of idiom all the time. Well, my translator didn't know what to do. This is, so, so he just he just translated it word for word, and you, the, these 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 poor pastors are like, what in the world? How can how can your children force you to climb walls? <laughs> well, there's there's idioms like that that we find in the scriptures, and in order for them to make sense, uh, they have to, the idiom has to be translated, and sometimes it loses its force. It's not as funny. You have to when you have to when you have to actually translate it. So you, you lose something. You lose the sometimes there's a replacement idiom, but oftentimes there's not. Another thing that uh, translators come into is this uh, is uh, is the problem of paratactic and hypotactic languages. Now this is this is where it gets really technical here. Okay, I wish I had my I wish I had a whiteboard here to, to write some things here, but. Paratactic, you know, if you if you think of para is alongside, okay, par- parallel. Uh, so so a paratactic language means that the structure of the sentences are multiple parallel 
constructions. Genesis 1 is probably a good example. Open up uh, Genesis 1 in your New American Standard, and you find that every single sentence, every single verse of Genesis 1, with the exception of verse 1, starts with the word and. It's one gigantic sentence that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, and it keeps going, and it continues the entire, it, it, in English, your, your English teacher would have said, this is a terrible sentence. And yet that's normal for Hebrew. Okay, uh, you, you find this this this, uh, uh, this this kind of structure all the time. Now, if you, now the opposite takes place in Greek. Uh, you know, oftentimes the, there's an appeal made to Ephesians one three to eleven. It's uh, it's uh, it's uh, you know it's, it's one one sentence again in Greek, but it's set up very differently. It's hypotech. Hypo is under. Okay. So we've got a whole bunch of subordinate clauses and phrases that all jumble together. I pray that with, of, whereupon, you know, and so there's there's all of these all of these. And so the sentences they're completely different. Your English teacher would also have said that's a terrible sentence. You you shouldn't be writing that way. So what ends up having to happen when you're when you're translating? If you're going to make the Bible sound English, you're actually going to have to change some of those sentences to make good English. So if you open up your uh, your your NIV, which you probably have in front of you, you'll find that not every verse in Genesis one starts with and. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And God said, let there be light. This, the next verse, they actually take out everything. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Okay, And so on and so forth. He turns it into good English. Yeah, that's the translators do. Same thing with Ephesians uh, 1, 3 to, 3 to 11. You know, you'll actually find that in English, it's not one sentence; it's three or four. Still, kind of long sentences, but but uh, but they but they break this down into sentences because English is somewhere in between a paratactic language and a hypotactic language. It's properly neither one. Hebrew is very paratactic; Greek is very hypotactic. English actually falls in between, and in order for a good tr- a translator to create something into good English, he's going to do neither. He's going to reflect neither. So like this one, English Standard came from the line of the King James, right? Yeah. That has a lot of hands. Yeah. Yeah. ESV is more formal than the NIV. Less formal than the Nazareth. Another another issue that comes up is vocabulary sets, and you you pointed this one out, Dave. Sometimes, in you know, I, I always remember when I was going through Hebrew, we always said Hebrew Hebrew vocab is really hard because they all there's so many that are so very similar to one another. 
And I, I remember one of the things I always uh, I always did was if I couldn't remember the Hebrew word, I just put down to destroy. It just seemed like there were dozens of words in Hebrew that meant destroy. <laughs> so, you know, whereas in English, there's only a few words that mean to destroy. And so you have this great variety of nuanced words for destruction that show up in Hebrew. Well, you only have so many English options to use. Sometimes it's the other way around. Okay. So English, we've got you've got you've got fifteen nuanced words for how you might translate a Greek word, and you know, you, know, you, you can actually choose between the two. So the vocabulary sets. Don't you, sometimes there is no there is no English word for a Greek word or a Hebrew word. There just isn't one. And so instead of supplying a word, you actually have to put in a phrase or something in order to to make the word make sense. Well. At that point, you're not you're not following a precise word for word translation. You can't. There is no word, so you can't go word for word. Another issue is verb tense. Now, this is a, again a very technical discussion here, but in Greek, technically we don't have tenses like we do in English. English, you've got past tense, a future tense, you've got present tense. But in, in Greek, you have a thing called aspect, which is a kind of action. Okay, so uh, we may be talking about ongoing action or action that's been completed in the past with continuing results. Okay, and so there, there's not, not actually a, a correspondence between tense and aspect. And so you can't, tr- I mean, this, this is sort of mind-boggling if you're, if if, you, if, if all you know is English and you know tense, it's hard for you to imagine even a language that is set up with verbs that don't use tense technically, but something else. It just seems, seems weird to us. But that's one of the things that a Greek translator has to wrestle with. Particularly difficult is the translation of poetry. You know, we, we tend to think of poetry as having rhyme and meter. And if you tried to translate a piece of English poetry into another language, it would never work. Because the words might not have the same number of syllables. They might not rhyme. Okay? You've got something similar that happens uh, when, when you're translating from Hebrew into English. Because their poetry is not like our poetry. Their poetry is not so much rhyme and meter, but actually the poetry, the, the, the parallelism of ideas. Okay? So, you know, something that's got a little bit of a cadence in, in Old Testament Hebrew and have these little rhetorical devices so that each word starts with the same letter. Well, it doesn't show up in English because it's, the words don't start with the same letter. So you, you lose some of that. And then probably another one is the, is the ordering of the language itself. Uh, we have... In, in English, what's sometimes called subject, verb, objects uh, sentence structure. Normally, when we construct sentences, we start with a, the subject up front, then the verb, and then the object. The boy hit the ball. Okay? The boy is the subject, it is the verb, the ball is the object. Uh, but in, in, in Greek, and Hebrew, that's not always the case. Sometimes 
the object comes first. Sometimes the verb comes first. Sometimes the subject comes first. It, it, actually, de- it actually is determined in, in large part as by which of them is the most important to the sentence. Well, if we tried to translate Greek that way into English, it would be very confusing. It would, it would sound like Yoda. You know, you know how Yoda speaks in, in Star Wars. Someone, I think. Yeah, it, 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 it would. It would be really weird. Okay, and so most translators don't don't make don't keep those the, that ordering. They they bring it into what is normal order for English. Okay, and so what we're looking for in translation is not always word for word. So just because the Bible is inerrant doesn't mean we are looking for something that preserves word, 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 word. Are there, are there any extreme examples of that? Yeah. Young's literal? Young's literal translation is probably one that is the, is the most overt. Although I don't think that was ever intended to be a translation. It just... It, uh, it, it, but it sort of got published as one. But I don't think that was ever the intent. But yes, you have that. So the, 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 the conclusion here is that the translation that is most committed to preserving the propositional intention of the original author is the one that is most accurate. Irrespective of whether it gets all the words in the right order or whether it has a precise word, 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 for every Greek word, there's an English word. Uh, so it's often thought that, okay, you know, NASB has to be much more accurate than the NIV because it goes, it, it looks at every word, it translates every word. And that's probably not true. The NIV is probably more accurate than the NIV, despite the fact that it doesn't do a word-for-word translation because it's concerned in making sure that you catch the propositional concept, the intention of the authors rather than the precise words which may not come to you as cleanly as, uh, as, as, as we might think they could. So where, where does it cross over the line and become dangerous? Is like New Living Translation? Is that like getting too... Yeah, I think the New Living Translation is still a legitimate translation. It's simple. We, had, I mean, we had our kids use it when they were little kids because it is written for a, a for a younger generation. But but what what happens when you do that is you lose some, you lose a little bit of something. Uh, you can't you can't do the finessing and the nuancing of the of the more precise words that you can for a, for an older audience. And so you lose something. But not so much that you lose the intention of what's there. Uh, but it's it's when you start leaving out portions or glossing portions of scripture that you know in a, in a paraphrase uh, that you start you start you know running into trouble. Yeah, the NIV is right in the middle, right where it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is, I always I always try to do this in my classes. It's my it's my little uh, my backhanded way for defending the uh, the NIV. But I think the NIV is actually a much more accurate translation than some of your very wooden translations that sort of boasts 
of their formal equivalency. Were you pro in that when you came to seminary? No, I wasn't. I, I, I remember. I remember. I said I'd be positive. Yeah, I remember. I remember coming home. In fact, my, my wife reminded me of this. I would come home and I said, "You know, when I was in college, because yeah, everybody in college was King James, and I was, I was, I was starting to not be a be a, a real fan of the King James." I was using the New American Standard, and I was I was sort of a rebel at Northland, you know, because <laughs> I was I wasn't using I wasn't using the King James. But then when I came to Detroit Seminary, he was up there uh, crowing about the NIV, and, <laughs> and, and he was just sort of pounded on the King James. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would come home and I told I told my wife, well, I just. I sometimes feel like I have to defend the King James. He's so he's so caustic. <laughs> but he's brought me along. <laughs> There's a little bit more to say about uh, inerrancy, but we'll call it the night here. We're actually past time, so uh, unless you have some sort of follow-up question to that.